You're listening to Tap Into Tax, PwC's podcast series covering current regulatory, legislative, and technology hot topics through the lens of our tax technical leaders, as well as process and technology subject matter specialists. This podcast features discussions with some of our leading minds around tax, trade, and domestic and global policy. Stay tuned to our regular updates and subscribe to our series to get notified as new episodes are published. Julie, I'm looking forward to our conversation today because as we learned last time, not every single industry was impacted in the same way. So I'm looking forward to our consumer market sector discussion today. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that, Margie, because last time, not every industry is impacted the same way, but not every company within the same industry, right? And I think one of the main points that keeps coming up, and we'll see what Eric has to say, but it seems like it's really relevant to consumer markets is supply chain and how they're going to deal with that. All right, Julie, let's talk tax. Hello, listeners. This is Julie Allen. I am PwC's National Tax Service Market Leader, and today I'm joined by Margie Dungeshaw, PwC's U.S. Tax Reporting and Strategy Leader, and Eric Shin, PwC's Consumer Markets Sector Tax Leader. So, Eric, to start off this conversation, we know that the initial COVID-19 impact and the resulting economic crisis, that that has meant something distinct to each sector. And so how have companies in the consumer market sector fared? The answer is not really one size fits all. Not only the impact distinct to each sector, but it's specific to subsectors. And even within those subsectors, the impact really depends on specific profile of each company. And for me, the key question is, which companies were better positioned to weather the storm? Which, by the way, may have been due to strategic business decisions made long before the pandemic hit. And perhaps in other cases, could be due to sudden surge in customer demand for certain products or services as a result of COVID-19. Think about necessities such as personal hygiene and household cleaning products and groceries. And let's face it, I got to be honest with you, it was only until recently I was able to stockpile on toilet paper. On the other hand, discretionary spending has taken a major hit, such as in luxury goods, beauty cosmetics, and particularly hit hard in the travel sector such as airlines and hospitality subsectors. But with that said, in light of this economic disruption, those that made a strategic decision to invest in the e-commerce channel or any other type of direct-to-consumer channel long before the pandemic hit have been able to adapt more easily than those with only brick-and-mortar presence. Let's just take a look at our own spending habits over the last three to four months, right? But the reality is, in many cases, COVID-19 was not the immediate cause of the difficulties facing businesses. Rather, it may have simply accelerated the inevitable. Companies without a robust alternative channel strategies to drive sales were already facing these challenges. And what COVID-19 has done is simply magnify those challenges as well as the changes that may need to be made. Eric, that's very interesting. And I want to highlight for our listeners just a couple of points that you raised as I was listening to you. You raised them with respect to the consumer market companies but it really applies to all sectors. You noted adaptability, really anticipating effective change management. And then the part I like is that you really focused on that COVID-19, it just accelerated the inevitable, that these important considerations that you've raised, that they're really important for any business management team in the current environment, but they're also gonna apply 
outside of it. It's just good management of really foreseeing and anticipating what change could come our way. That's an excellent point, Julie and Eric. So let's take a big step back. And looking at overall business model considerations, what are the some of the immediate actions, Eric, that you're seeing companies take in response to all of this? If we were to rewind back a few months, so when COVID-19 first hit, I think most companies were in crisis mode. I know we were, you know, assembling task forces, engaging in triage process. And then fast forward to now, and we're kind of seeing a sense of optimism. You know, we're seeing more mitigation and even more early signs of heading into plans of recovery. And with that said, what would really be interesting is which organizations will reconsider their overall business model and investments they're making and in order to emerge stronger. What COVID-19 may have done is to highlight which core capabilities they really need, and not only to survive, but really ultimately to be successful in this unprecedented time. Perhaps capabilities they potentially are missing or just simply boosting their existing capabilities. The most obvious capability is some sort of direct-to-consumer model, especially in building out the e-commerce channel. But it could also mean enhancing the supply chain, such as more efficient logistics and distributions network. And Julie, I really want to get your thoughts on this as well. But to the extent that some companies were missing these core capabilities, companies may need to find a way to make the requisite investment quickly, perhaps through acquisitions. And on the flip side, we may also see companies consider pulling out of certain parts of their businesses that are either underperforming or expected to underperform in a COVID-19 environment and creating drag on the bottom line profit. So this is especially important given that nearly all businesses need additional liquidity to one degree or another. Let's just take a food supplier as an example. A typical food supplier may have focused historically on both retail channels, such as groceries, as well as alternative channels, such as restaurants, hotel chains, and workplace, you know, like vending machines come to mind. But one or more of those channels may no longer be worth pursuing. I mean, we're not going back to work anytime soon, right? So I'm really curious to see if we'll see some uptick in divestiture activities that could free up cash, help with liquidity, and in certain cases, to reinvest in enhancing some of the necessary capabilities as we discussed before. Absolutely, Eric. I think you get near and dear to my heart in the deals environment. What is the future going to look like in deals from what we're seeing? Divestitures and acquisitions that you just mentioned are key. Now, we did see a bit of deal slowing for a while, right? But exactly the points you mentioned are where we expect to see an uptick. And what is interesting is I expect these deals to look a little bit different, where companies now might focus more on their technology than their real estate, that deal will look different. The risk, the value pricing in the deal will be a little bit different than what they normally looked at for brick and mortar companies. You mentioned e-commerce and really focused on that. And that's something that many deal teams are thinking differently. It also, I'll just put out there and say, the knowledge gap of doing a deal remotely and looking at, like I said, some of the technology focus or how the targets are going to integrate from the new world that we're in, how they're going to integrate and look for those synergies. Some of those technology focused is very different than where we were before. So that's going to bring with it some knowledge gaps and companies are going to have to quickly pivot to close those gaps in a deal environment. So back to your point, does it have an impact on deals, the acquisitions or divestitures? Absolutely going through that diligence in that deal environment 
will also look different than it has in the past. I think you're absolutely right. And what's interesting to me is certainly there are bargain hunters out there, but also when we look at the market, it's kind of behaved in a way where it was almost illogical in terms of how we're almost bouncing back to the pre-COVID-19 standard. There are a lot of challenges out there and it'll be interesting to see what happens. And it is an interesting situation we're in right now and that there's lots of change and lots of fluidity. However, in the spirit of there's nothing new under the sun, in the deals environment for every buyer, you need a seller. And so as we're thinking through carve-out financial statement preparation, deal modeling, uncertain tax position assessments, diligence, integrating newly acquired entities and getting to those cost savings as quickly as possible. Those have always been and will continue to be pressing topics for companies as they're moving through this chapter in their corporate lives. So Eric and Julie, that was a fantastic overview. And I can see all the broad and really interrelated impacts on multiple areas of the consumer market sector. So talking about potential transactions and talking about potential changes, let's pivot a bit to focus on supply chains specifically, because we know this topic is top of mind for many of the companies. As a data point, 25% of CFOs in our recent CFO Pulse survey responded that changes in supply chain strategies would be the most important approach to rebuilding or enhancing their altered revenue streams. So Eric, can you share some examples of the kinds of measures that you're seeing businesses taking to try to enable access to the data so they can do the analysis so they have informed decision-making before they pull the trigger on these kinds of decisions and transactions. Yeah, Margie. What I said earlier from an overall business perspective in terms of rethinking overall strategy, well, it inevitably trickles down to supply chain. So not to repeat myself, but companies may need to invest in alternative channels like additional technology and automation and accelerating the implementation of digital and online strategy if they didn't have so. One other thing that we're seeing from our clients is a focus on streamlining the workforce and logistics, especially given the cost reduction pressure that many organizations are experiencing these days. And in some cases, some may deem it necessary even to think about shrinking their supply chain footprint, where we may see more of localization versus globalization of supply chain network as cross-border activities could pose more challenges these days. And as such, companies may need to consider alternative sources of supply if their current resources are shut down or otherwise constrained. So, for example, they may want to consider building out internal procurement function and in-source supply from related party affiliates. And, you know, Eric, those last two points that you make sound like a great segue to the tax side of the equation. Absolutely, supply chain is a big focus, but some of those business decisions that you were just talking about, those can carry significant tax consequences. For example, from a transfer pricing standpoint, right? Supply chain transfer pricing, those kind of go hand in hand when we're talking about them. So can you help our audience really navigate through more that transfer pricing standpoint and those significant tax consequences associated with it. <laughs> Julie, yeah, I knew we would have to talk about tax at some point. That's actually a perfect example of how connected this whole dynamic is from a transfer pricing standpoint. Let's start with the fact that many of us are working from home, including recording this podcast. And this also could include executives and in various functions, including supply chain. 
this leads to the question of whether physical presence should be the deciding factor for determining value drivers. And if you think about it, that's really the essence of what the BEPS 2.0 project is trying to address in terms of going towards a more of a destination-based tax model. And where really some thorny issues can arise and may present uncertainties around how and when such framework may be implemented. But I'll say until then, physical presence remains a very important factor in determining how the property is allocated. And wherever you have a change in the location of key functions, assets, or risks, and this will dovetail into discussions of whether a company's current transfer pricing policy reflects these business realities. Now, we've seen some relief measures come out in terms of addressing the potential PE issues, as well as on the personal income tax side. But let's remember that these are only temporary measures. And also for those companies with non-U.S. supply chain principles or perhaps uh, non-U.S. sourcing operations who still need to meet the substantial contribution requirement under subpart F rules, there are no relief. And physical location is still very much matters in meeting the requirement. And as mentioned before, with respect to localization and insourcing, this may result in a change from a third party to related party relationships. And those relationships will need to be characterized and priced from a transfer pricing standpoint. Eric, those are great points. And I will tell you, just relating that back to the deal environment that we were talking about earlier, all of these transfer pricing points that you're raising are points that we're looking at in a deal setting because, you know, right-sizing workforce, aligning them in the proper jurisdictions, looking at the compliance related with that, looking at the transfer pricing, that's just blown up in a deal, right? It's very key and very important. So I think all that you highlighted here is very helpful from a tax perspective. And so listening to what you've just been saying about tax and what needs to change, in addition to transfer pricing, I'm also thinking about trade and the landscape that we see in trade. And that's a huge driver in supply chain considerations. I would love to get your thoughts on how in the consumer market sector, how you would look at trade and consider that in tandem with tax. Yeah, Julie, that's absolutely right. New trade alignments and automation opportunities, along with disruptions like the current pandemic, may add up to additional complexities and challenges. So what do I mean by that? Well, what may seem like a good approach from a tax perspective actually may do more harm with respect to companies' trade footprint. So this is why it's very, very important for the C-suite to understand that tax and trade need to be joined at the hip, especially now. So what we've been doing is we strongly encourage our own teams to make sure that conversation with clients on these supply chain issues do not take place without involving our global trade service team. And also, there may be cash bring opportunities for reinvestments that I mentioned earlier, like the duty drawbacks. It's been around for ages, but now it's more timely opportunity than ever. Yeah, Eric, it's so important to make sure that all the ancillary impacts of these changes that are being made are considered because what might look positive at first blush, once you consider all the ancillary impacts and knock-on effects, that original value or benefit that everybody was striving for gets diluted if all these other component parts aren't factored in. So Eric, all of what you just described just shows how access to source system data, use of all that data, and use of technology solutions to facilitate scenario modeling for all the ancillary impacts so that 
all the overlapping areas of tax reform and transfer pricing and trade can all be cooked in. Super important. So shifting gears a little bit to look ahead to recovery. Someday we will get to recovery. In our latest CFO Pulse survey, we found that 21% of consumer markets CFOs said that supply chain is a top three concern with respect to returning to the workplace and operating in a changed business environment. And that percentage is significantly higher than CFOs in other industries. So tell us, what's your take on that? What's driving that perception? Yeah, Margie, I mean, the survey makes perfect sense. Companies are under immense pressure to provide reassurance to their customers, their employees, and their investors that they can operate again, but more importantly, that they can operate safely. So, for example, I believe the CFO survey also reveals that to attract new workers and keep them safe, consumer market companies are more likely to be interested in evaluating new tools that support workforce location tracking and contact tracing than other sectors. And that is totally understandable because the workforce is such a large part of what makes supply chain operate successfully. And also from a consumer standpoint, I mean, we're all consumers here, right? Given a choice, where would we shop? Eat, fly, rent a car, and stay over at a hotel? Well, for me personally, more so than where I can find the best value, is where I feel the safest. So forever can perfect a strategy to assure their customers of the safety measures really could potentially come out of this stronger than others. And it's also important to highlight that there is a renewed focus on sustainability and social responsibility, especially in light of recent events, which is important to both investors and consumers and now to employees as well. This is such a super important topic for consumer markets companies, but perhaps a topic for another day. I am looking forward to the day when I can participate in all of those activities again. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So in any case, all of these parameters are part of the new normal for consumer markets and supply chain. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all your insights. It's really important for all of us to appreciate all the interrelated nature of these very complex challenges that many consumer markets companies are navigating through right now. So all the information that you shared with us, real helpful as we're trying to navigate this new normal. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure, and I uh, look forward to getting together in person. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. For our non-audit and unrestricted clients, the advisory services and assistance described range across a comprehensive, multidisciplinary, and multi-competencies platform. For our audit clients, our podcast can be used to provide helpful insights and thought leadership, and under appropriate circumstances, elements of a solution. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.